Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. That's where we are today. We are overviewing the books of the Bible, book by book, to, to just get a, a sense of the outline of each of the books. And today, the Gospel of Luke, here's the key concept for today. Jesus is the Savior for all humanity, Jew and Gentile alike. I mentioned to you that each of the gospel authors tells the story in a little different fashion, has a, a little different audience in mind as he tells the, the story of Jesus Christ. And this is the thread that weaves itself through the gospel of Luke, how the message of Jesus Christ is for all people. It doesn't matter your class. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your language. It doesn't matter your color. It's for all people. Salvation and hope for all. That's what Luke wants to get across as he tells the story. Now, we, we know of Luke from the, the book of Acts. We know that he is a medical doctor who joined up with the uh, missionary journeys of Paul in the city of Troas, which is a city on the Aegean Sea in the nation that we now call Turkey. Paul was on his second missionary journey when he met up with Luke. Two notable events happened in that city of Troas. One is that he met this Gentile convert, Luke, and the other, and, and he continued on as his personal physician in the journeys. The other significant event that happened in Troas was Paul had a vision. And the vision that he had in Troas was of a man beckoning him to cross the Aegean Sea and come into the nation of Greece. And as Paul obeyed that vision, it's the very first time the gospel was preached in the area that we now call Europe. They wouldn't have called it Europe in Paul's days, but that's where Luke and Paul team up. He was a Gentile. He's a Gentile, and he writes the Gospel of Luke and its sequel, which is the book of Acts, and we'll get to that in a little while. I mentioned to you that, that uh, each of the Gospels has a different audience in mind, and Luke's Gospel is unique in that it is the story of Jesus Christ written to a particular person for his understanding. That, that person's name is Theophilus. In chapter 1, verse 3, he's named. And the reason I know that this was a particular person, the name means lover of God. And that name was a popular name in the first century, Theophilus. But, but it doesn't mean lover of God in a kind of general nebulous sense. He's a particular person, and I know that because he carries the title. Most excellent Theophilus. All throughout the book of Acts, when the, the title most excellent is used, it's talking about a person who is a Roman with some official rank. So Theophilus was a person with some official rank in the Roman Empire. He also writes the book of Acts to Theophilus. And when we get to Acts, I'm going to talk a little bit about who I think Theophilus was in terms of the story of the, of the, the journeys of the Apostle Paul. But in any way, so Luke writes this, uh, this uh, gospel to this Roman official, Theophilus. And what he wants to show is Jesus as the hero. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is a hero. He's just heroic. And the, the, he's on a rescue mission for humanity. And the character of God comes, in the gospel, comes out in the Gospel of Luke as that of compassionate and merciful and loving and gracious when we see Jesus as the hero. So read with me the first four verses in, in Luke's Gospel, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. Dr. Luke brings a scientist's mind to the telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the longest of all of the gospels. 
It has a wide variety of miracles and teachings and parables. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, like I said, the thread that's woven through is that Jesus is the Savior for all mankind. He's a, the man for all mankind. And so God, Dr. Luke shows us the longest account of Jesus' birth in any of the Gospels. He gives us the only glimpse we have into Jesus' boyhood years. And in his opening statement here, he re reveals something interesting about the way that he came to write his Gospel. And it's important for us to know that so that we don't fall into error. A common error is thinking that the Bible somehow was dictated from heaven into the, into the hands of the writing secretaries who were the human authors word by word, just dictation. But that's not how the Bible came to be. And we see that proven, by the way. Luke says, this is how I came to write this gospel. I, I did research. You see, Luke wasn't with Jesus. He was not one of the apostles. He didn't see any of this firsthand. And so he did research. He talked to the eyewitnesses, and he gathered together the other writings that were around about Jesus' life, and he put them all together, and he said, now I have set out to write this orderly account. Luke did Holy Spirit-inspired research, and then he wrote down this Spirit-inspired book, and when he, when he does it, he writes with his own vocabulary and his own personality coming out in the way that he crafts the story of Jesus Christ. That's important to know because that, what I just told you, is called the doctrine of confluent inspiration. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible authors to write the truth that he wanted them to write, but in such a way that it came out with the fluency of the authors. And so Dr. Luke gives us kind of a scientific treatment of the life of Jesus Christ. And as he does that, he outlines his, his gospel in three large sections. The first section we'll call the coming of the Savior, which is chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 13. The second section, the ministry of the Savior, which is the large middle part, chapter 4, verse 14 to 19, 27. And then the third section, the sacrifice of the Savior, 19 through chapters 24, and then the ascension there at the very end. And so that outline is in your, in your bulletin if you want to kind of see it laid out before you. But it begins with the coming of the Savior. And interestingly enough, when Luke talks about the coming of the Savior, he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He starts talking about Jesus' extended family, his aunt and his uncle, and the birth of his cousin, John the Baptist. You see, Luke lays these two births side by side, the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, because he wants you to compare and contrast what's happening with these two, two births. And we find out that as uh, John the Baptist's birth is foretold to Zacharias, Jesus' uncle, uh, and, and foretold to Mary, when you lay these birth stories side by side, you see that in both cases, an angel announces the coming birth. In both cases, the angel names the baby before they're born. In both cases, the births are miraculous, but there's a contrast. Uh, Elizabeth is old and sterile, but Mary is young and still a virgin. And Luke connects these two, birth, these two births and their announcement to kind of ramp Theophilus up for what he's about to hear. Because Theophilus, being a Roman, it would be hard for him to conceive how is it that the one true God came in the flesh. How, did that, how, is, how does that even compute? And so Luke is kind of showing him God was setting all of this up, all of this ministry and all of these miracles that he's going to do and the salvation he'll provide for us. God was working all of this in anticipation even of his birth. And these two miraculous foretold births tell that story. And then when Jesus is born... Luke's theme of that the gospel is for everyone comes through because the first witnesses to the fact that Jesus has arrived are shepherds, a surprising audience. And as we go into chapter 2, verse 8, we read these words. 
and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. I think that that is the most familiar passage of Scripture in Western society today. You know why? Because as I read those words, you could almost hear the voice of Linus. Am I right? The Christmas Charlie Brown special, year after year after year, that's the, those are the New Testament verses that are read by Linus or recited by Linus. I was uh, listening to a lecture by a man who was uh, formerly brought up Jewish and he came to Christ as an adult. And he said, those are the only verses I ever heard from the New Testament, watching that Charlie Brown Christmas special. But as I watched that Charlie Brown Christmas special, those were the verses that got me interested to read about Jesus Christ. And when I read about Jesus Christ, I fell in love with him through those verses. But here's Luke telling the story. And who are the witnesses to the birth? These are witnesses that you wouldn't expect. Shepherds were kind of rejects in society. Shepherds were not invited in polite places. Shepherds were not well respected. And plus, they smelled bad. They hung around sheep all the time. But these are the ones who come and they witness the, the birth of, of Jesus Christ. And the message is, is for everybody. It doesn't matter your rank or your job or what you look like or what you smell like. It's for, for everybody. And in this, Bethlehem has come full circle. The city of the shepherd boy David, who became the ruler, is the place of the birth of the good shepherd, who is the ultimate ruler. And the witness is shepherds. Shepherds. They get the announcement. Well, Luke is the only one who goes on to tell us about the temple visit at the 40 days purification and Jesus is presented there. Luke is the only one who tells us about the family going up to the temple at Passover when Jesus is 12. Go over to chapter 2, verse 48. And we see that situation there. You remember the story. The family went up for Passover. They left with the caravan back to Galilee. And they thought Jesus was among them. But even after a few days travel, they didn't find him. And so they raced back, looking all over the place for Jesus, wondering where he is. And we pick up the story in verse 48. They found him at the temple. And it says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Can't you just hear your mother saying this? Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Luke shows us these glimmers of Jesus' boyhood because he wants you to understand that he grew up in a good Jewish family. Religious Jews practicing their faith, doing the things that their faith told them to do. But we see Jesus understands himself as more than that, just in that statement. Because no good Jew would say of the Heavenly Father, My Father. It would never happen. It's way too intimate. They might say the Father. They might say Father, but they wouldn't say our Father, you know, but they wouldn't say my Father. In other words, Jesus separates himself out from the group. He already knows at 12 that he is unique. He has a unique relationship with the Heavenly Father. It's, it's just a glimmer, just a glimpse, but we see it there. And as tantalizing as that is, then silence of Jesus, in Jesus' life for 18 years. And we pick up the story later, 18 years later in chapter 3. And Luke is very careful to make sure his Roman reader knows when this stuff happens. So he connects it to the Roman history. Verse, verse three, chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. See, this is what a Roman would want to know. Who was in charge when all of this was happening? And he tells us then about the situation where John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is out in the wilderness preparing the way, baptizing people for, for repentance, telling them, get ready, God is about to do something great. And into that scene, Jesus himself comes 
and we hear from God's voice. Pick up the reading in verse 21 of chapter 3. When the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Can you imagine hearing the voice of God thundering from heaven? You are my son and you I am well pleased. Notice with me, Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet, hasn't done any healings yet, hasn't done any preaching yet. That's all yet to come. God is not saying to Jesus, you're doing a good job, son. Keep up the good work. That's not what he's saying. It's not about earning. Jesus is saying, I mean, God is saying, God the Father, I love you. I love you for who you are. I'm pleased with you. And I want you to hear that voice of God over you today. I love you. It's not about the hoops you jump through. It's not about the earning of the favor. God already loves you. He has always loved you. And if you don't know him as Savior yet, he loves you now. And he's ready to say you can be forgiven through the blood of Christ. God already loves us. And then, after saying all of that, then Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus. But it's a genealogy with a twist. Because he's already demonstrated to us that the only blood relative of Jesus is Mary. Joseph's not his human father. And so when Luke gives us his genealogy, he gives us the genealogy of the blood. He gives us Mary's, Mary's side of the family. And he takes them all the way back through David all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Why? Because the point is well, is, is he's making is this is for everyone who's alive. This Savior and this Rescuer is for all. Well, as we enter chapter 4, we enter the ministry years of Jesus, and I want to uh, just land on the temptation scene with you for a little bit uh, because... Um, I want you to note the nature of the temptation uh, that's, that Jesus goes through. Notice it's not a temptation about lust. It's not a temptation about greed or envy. It's a temptation regarding his identity. You see, God the Father has just said, you are my son, I'm well pleased with you. But along comes Satan in chapter 4, verse 3. Notice what he says. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, Satan doesn't really question whether Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that he is. But he questions the, his mission, this, this, this mission that he's on in terms of sacrificing himself for us. Now, if you're the Son of God, why are you going through all this? If you're the Son of God, why are you suffering like this? If you're the Son of God, right, that's kind of the, the, the way he tempts. I can make your, your job a whole lot easier. That's the way he tempts as well. I can make things go smooth for you. Just say the word. Just do what I ask you to do, and everything will work out. And the nature of Satan's temptation on us is the same. That's why I pointed out. And then Satan does something that's very sly. In the midst of the temptation of Jesus, he begins to quote Scripture to Jesus. But he misquotes Scripture. And he twists Scripture. You see, Satan really means business when he uses the Bible as his playbook. And by using the Bible as his playbook, but twisting the words, twisting the context just a little bit, he makes the Scriptures say things that they never said mean things that they never meant. And he's doing that today in our world. A little snippet here, a little snippet there, quoted in speech here and a speech there, way out of context, not meaning anything that it was meant to mean. And soon the secular society of modern day thinks that they're obeying the Word of God when it's exactly backwards. It's Satan's greatest play. But Jesus knows that play. And Jesus quotes the Scripture correctly. He knows His Word. And he knows his heavenly father. And he goes through this, this temptation. And I want you to see something else about that scene. Because it's important for you to know that being tempted is not a sin. 
Jesus was tempted, yet was without sin. Satan will tell you that when you feel the temptation, you might as well go do it, right? I've already thought it out. I've already, you know, already, might as well just give in, get it over with, right? But being tempted is not a sin. Saying yes to the temptation is sin. So you can battle through by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus battled through. And then it also proves to us that when he went to the cross, he was not paying for any sin on his plate. He was not paying for his own guilt there. He was the guiltless lamb of God sacrificed for us. He was our substitute there on the cross. Nothing in himself was deserving of that death. Well, Luke gives us uh, all of that. And then the next scene that he shows us in the ministry, Jesus travels back up north to Galilee and he gives a self-identification about who he really is in the synagogue of his hometown. Go over to verse 17 of chapter 4. He goes back to the synagogue of his hometown and says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Verse 17. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. He had to search for this passage, and he did so on purpose, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled the scroll back up again. He gave it to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, they understood that to be a messianic prophecy, and it is. Isaiah was writing that saying, When the Messiah comes, this is what he will do. Can you imagine that he sits down and says, Today, right here, that is being fulfilled. I think Jaws hit the floor. What? He is claiming to be the Messiah. Now, Luke goes on to say, and they marveled at his teaching. Yeah, I think. They marveled at his teaching. But, they, but then he gives us some detail because Jesus goes on to say, as the story unfolds, but you know, the blessing of that Messiah, the blessing of the work that the Messiah will do is not just for the Jews. It's for Gentiles as well. And that is when they rose up and tried to kill him, proclaiming him to be a heretic. But he escaped from their clutches in that scene. But do you see the theme that Luke is, is carrying forth? He wants us to see that Jesus recognized this for all people. Well, in the next few chapters, you'll have to move quickly with me. Chapter 6, 5, 6, and 7, we see Jesus as the hero in action. But in chapter 7, we see something that's surprising. So I'm going to land there with you. Chapter 7, verse 36. It says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This is so surprising to us because every time we see the Pharisees, they're, they're the enemies of Jesus. 28 times they're named and they're always in opposition to Jesus. But here, a Pharisee whose name we learn is Simon has invited Jesus into the house. What's going on here? We need to understand that this is not a searching heart trying to hear from the Savior. This is a cynical curiosity on the part of Simon. He invites Jesus in to check him out. And right away, he puts Jesus on edge by not doing the polite things that would be expected to be done in that uh, situation of hospitality. It's not that he is overtly rude to Jesus, but he doesn't do the things that you would expect. And so you can tell he's not quite welcome. He's not quite, quite, uh, quite really a, a guest in the home. And into that scene walks a woman with a sinful past. Go on to reading in verse 39. 
excuse me, verse 37, when a woman who lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now, what you don't understand, what we don't get is that in that culture, when a, when a, a rich person was entertaining a well-known guest, it was not uncommon at all for other people to come in to sit around the wall of the dining room and listen in on the table conversation. Okay, that would be fine. They wouldn't eat any of the food, but they'd be able to listen in on the conversation. Don't forget, they had no TV, right? There was, there was not a lot of stuff to do. And so, you know, this was entertainment. So let's go, what's, you know, who, who do you want to go listen to tonight, honey? Well, let's go up to the Pharisee's house, see what they're talking about. And so that's exactly what it was. And in walks this woman who has, is a prostitute. And so why does she come? She came because she has already heard Jesus preach. She came because she heard the message and believed the word that said, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. You can be forgiven of your sins and saved forever. And she repented and she believes and she comes now to worship him. You see, repentance which brings forgiveness breeds worship. It breeds gratitude. But when she came in, coming with her perfume in hand to, to anoint him just as a way of saying thank you and worshiping him, she notices that the little niceties have not been given to him. His feet were not washed when he came in to the dinner. Her Savior is being treated poorly. And she's weeping and her tears are falling on the dusty feet. And she wipes them with her hair and anoints him with her perfume. Without thinking about it, she gave him her humility, gave away her pride. And true forgiveness that leads to worship compels humble service. And that's what she gives to Jesus. We can learn a lot from this woman. True service is humble service. And Simon watched it, but instead of understanding it, Simon was repulsed by it. And he judges her and he judges Jesus. If this guy really was somebody, he'd know who it was that was touching him. And go down to verse 39. No, go down to verse 40. Those are the thoughts in Simon's head recorded in verse 39. And then verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. What is he answering? His thoughts. Not only do I know who this woman is, I know what you're thinking. And I know who you are. And Jesus goes on to tell the story about the person who is forgiven much, loves much. And that this woman has been forgiven much and shows she loves. It's the natural response when you're forgiven to express your love and gratitude to the Savior. And Simon, the reason that you don't do the same is because you don't love me. And the reason that you don't love me is you've not been forgiven. And the reason that you've not been forgiven is you don't think you have to be. And Jesus saved his harshest rebuke for that attitude. And so Simon gets more than he bargains for in this little dinner. So Jesus goes on with his ministry life. We, won't, we don't have time to cover it all. But I want you to go to where the tone of the book changes. And that's in chapter 19. Everything changes in chapter 19. Because Jesus is going through his ministry years. And for the most part, after his conversation in the synagogue of Nazareth, he doesn't let people know that he's the true Messiah. He doesn't let that overtly come out of his mouth until you get to chapter 19. And there in chapter 19 and the record of the triumphal entry, everything changes. In the triumphal entry, the Palm Sunday scene, he takes on the imagery of the, of the Messiah who will come and he fulfills the prophecy uh, that, of the triumphal entry. And he's proclaiming to all who will know it that he sees himself as that one true king. And Luke then goes on to give us a lot of details about the last week of Jesus' life. He shows us Jesus' teaching. He shows us Jesus predicting the destruction of Jerusalem, which will come in 70 A.D. 
And his heart is breaking because he knows that's going to happen to his people. And through that destruction, he predicts the end times that are yet to come. And then he tells us the story of the upper room and the, the prayer and the Mount, Mount of Olives and the crucifixion eventually. Crucifixion that was common but gruesome. It was such a painful and humiliating way to die that it was against the law in the Roman Empire for a Roman citizen to be crucified no matter what crime he commits or she. Illegal because it's so painful and so humiliating. That's why later in history, Peter, the Galilean, will be crucified for his faith. But Paul, the Roman citizen, will be beheaded because it was illegal to crucify him. Luke alone shows us in chapter 23 that one of the condemned prisoners turns to Christ in faith and is saved while hanging on the cross. You see, the message is salvation is for all, even a prostitute, even a condemned man. Of course, Jesus died on that cross, taking the penalty for our sins, but death couldn't hold him. And all the Gospels speak of the resurrection, but only Luke tells us the story of the men who are so discouraged at what they went through seeing Jesus crucified on the cross that they walk out of the city of Jerusalem heading to a place called Emmaus. Mark refers to it, but, but Luke gives, to, gives it to us in detail because he wants us to see that the gospel is true even for those who are discouraged and depressed, who think that the world is against them and it's, not, you know, it's no use going on, and they were walking away from what they thought they had. But Christ came and walked with them, and then he began, sat down with them to eat, and he began to teach them, and their eyes were open, and they ran back to the city. Why? To tell the story that he was risen because now there's something to live for. And they go back to Jerusalem. Only Luke tells us that story. And this is for all who believe. And then he tells us the story of the ascension in chapter 24. And Acts, Luke's sequel, will pick up exactly at that spot. But before he closes the book, he makes the point once again from Jesus' own lips. This is for all people. Verse 48 of chapter 24 says this. And he told them. This is just before he's ascended into heaven. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. He's telling his disciples, you're the ones who are going to carry this out. It starts here, but it goes to all people. And the message of Luke to Theophilus, who's reading this, is not, it's not at all subtle. It's, it's even for Romans, Theophilus. And it's even for us today, for all who believe. So that what, that's what comes next. Tell the story and spread the word and call people to repentance. Because the simple gospel is repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the shed blood of Jesus is for all who will say yes to faith. I trust that that's you.